Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. Today we'll be speaking with Linda Carlson. Dr. Carlson is a clinical psychologist and the Enbridge Research Chair in Psychosocial Oncology at the University of Calgary. She's a leading researcher in mindfulness and cancer, as well as an author. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Carlson about stress and its effects on cancer, mindfulness, and how mindfulness meditation can help those affected by cancer. We'll also ask Dr. Carlson how someone can learn mindfulness. I want to welcome Linda Carlson. Thank you for joining us today on Integrative Oncology Talk. It's a pleasure. You are an expert in mindfulness meditation and research, especially as it impacts cancer. Can you tell us what mindfulness meditation is? Sure. So let's maybe just start with the concept of mindfulness itself. Um, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about about what mindfulness really is and how you practice it. So it really is a simple idea. Mindfulness is just this idea of paying attention on purpose in the present moment and with an open and accepting attitude. So again, it's simple, but it's not easy, this paying attention in the present moment, because if you think about where your mind often is, um, and if you do do that exercise and pay attention to your thoughts, you know, you might find that it's in the past, right? Going over something that happened, ruminating and saying, oh, why me? Or what if, or if only, or maybe it's racing off to the future, right? Worrying about all those deadlines and things that might happen and difficulties, right? So your mind's in the past, it's racing off to the future, it misses the present moment, which is really the only time that we live our lives. You know, and interestingly, I mean, in terms of mindfulness, research actually shows that about when you ping people throughout the day and ask them, what are you thinking about? About half the time, uh, our minds are not in the present moment. And when people are in the present moment, it turns out that they report being happier. So there's this idea of being in the present moment, but I don't want to leave out the attitude part. And if we think about the way we define mindfulness, we actually think about three components. So one of the models is called IAA. So there's intention, that's doing it on purpose or with a purpose. And intention can vary over time, depending on where you're at with your practice. And it may be a very simple intention, just I want to wake up to my life. I want to be there for it. Or it could be an intention that is more esoteric. I want to grow and evolve spiritually. Or it could be very practical. I just want to sleep better at night. So you've got your intention. That's sort of your guiding, guiding uh, sort of motivation. And then attention. So that's the core practice of paying attention. That's the skill of it, uh, the training of it. So mindfulness also is a way of being in the world. We can be more or less mindful at any, any given time, right? It doesn't take extra time just to live your life mindfully. So that's a way of being, but it's also a skill. 
like playing tennis or the piano, right? The skill of mindfulness is not something that we acquire just by wanting to be more mindful. We have to actually do the training, the attention training. So that's the first A, is training your attention. That's the mindfulness meditation, the practice that we do on a regular basis. So that's the first A. And the second A, as I mentioned, is attitude. And that's really important because you can be very harsh and critical of yourself and your mind as it wanders like they do. And I can't do this, doing it wrong. You know, it's impossible. I'm a failure. And so we need to think about being more open and kind and accepting and non-striving. So there's a whole range of attitudes that it's really important to apply to the mindfulness practice. Thank you. Uh, that makes sense? It, it makes a lot of sense. And I want to get more into the practice with you. Um, I'm curious, though, how you got started um, in this line of research and uh, just focused on this in your life. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it started in my life a lot sooner than it did in my research as these things often evolve. So I started graduate school um, in Montreal in 1992, I guess it was. And right around that time, I always had an interest in Eastern philosophy and practices and had an opportunity with a classmate, actually a number of classmates who were interested in this area. Um, and we formed a practice group and we had some people with a lot of expertise and we started meditating once a week. We'd meet at someone's house and we would, um, you know, have different people leading the groups and we would do readings. And so I started doing that as a personal practice. That was in my early 20s. And at the same time, I started taking yoga classes um, through the university and was fortunate to have a very uh, kind of well-trained spiritual sort of teacher who brought the mindfulness piece in. And so I did that for a good five or six years before I had the opportunity to start bringing it into my clinical work. And that happened in 1997 when I was finishing my PhD and came back to my hometown of Calgary. And one of my rotations was at a cancer center, the Tom Baker Cancer Center, where, where I still am. In fact, it's 20 years later now. Um, and had the great fortune to meet my colleague, Michael Specka, and a couple of other colleagues, actually, Eileen Goody and Maureen Angan, who all had an interest in yoga and meditation and bringing that to the cancer patients we were helping. And so we started developing a, a program. Well, they had actually started before I got there, and I arrived, and I knew about John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction and had actually met him through, through Kirk Brown, who um, mindfulness research, researchers might know. He's the developer of the Mindful Attention Awareness Scale. Kirk was one of my classmates at McGill in two, uh, 1995. He brought John Kabat-Zinn to Montreal, and that's when I first, I joke, I first ate a raisin mindfully in 1995. And so I knew about MBSR. And so 1997 came along. I was in Calgary. I had these interested colleagues. We had access to a large population of cancer patients that we wanted to help. And so we devised an adaptation of MBSR um, that we now call mindfulness-based cancer recovery. And so that's kind of how it all got integrated from personal to professional. Um, and just was a really good opportunity to bring together both those pieces. Thank you. You mentioned mindfulness-based cancer recovery. Um, one of the books that I often recommend uh, to um, people I'm seeing is your book, actually, um, Mindfulness-Based Cancer Recovery. Um, I want to talk first about stress. Um, you know, stress is something that we all talk about and experience in different ways, but obviously those affected by cancer definitely have, uh, you know, acute and chronic stress. Can you tell us a little bit about how stress may impact uh, somebody affected by cancer? 
Well, sure. Um, you know, there's many different, I guess the question I would ask you as an oncologist too, is when you think about the cancer experience, so stress is a really broad kind of umbrella term. When you think about the people that you work with who have cancer, you know, what are the difficulties they're dealing with specifically? I think it's anxiety, number one. Um, so worrying. Worrying each scan that somebody gets. They're worried that the cancer might be back or might be getting worse. Um, so fear a, of cancer recurrence, fear right? Fear of cancer recurrence. Uncertainty about the future. And then there's a lot of changes that might occur in one's life. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, changes in physical appearance, changes in how you feel, um, be, being very vulnerable, uh, a lack of self-control when you're going through treatment. There's financial impacts to having cancer. So there's a lot of uncertainty yeah, and there can be disability and time off work, right? Like you said, uncertainty, not knowing, no one can tell you, even the best oncologist can't give you a clear prognosis, you know, in your specific case. So <clears throat> no matter how sort of good of things look, there's always the fear of cancer recurrence. There's anxieties about uh, your plans for the future because all of a sudden things are turned upside down. You thought you would, you know, work your job, retire, you know, see your kids grow up and all this kind of stuff and all of a sudden now that's being challenged so there's a lot of challenges uh to existentially i guess you know the the life threat the mortality that people have to face um as you said anxiety and worry about the cancer coming back financial concerns so there's all sorts of worries about the future and your mind can go there and spend a lot of time there um, and then there's also the actual physical symptoms right so what are some of the treatment side effects you often encounter you get neuropathy, you get uh, fatigue, pain, yeah. fatigue, obviously, pain. Yeah, and then the other kind of things that are more behavioral, like fatigue, right? Chronic fatigue is a huge problem. Difficulty sleeping is also related to anxiety. Uh, so we have all this host of different symptoms that people are dealing with. And it just so happens that the mindfulness approach can help you to tackle a lot of those from different angles. It's actually really very adaptable. Um, so if we look at, for example, fear of cancer recurrence, that's the mind racing off in the future. All these what ifs, you know, what am I going to do if this happens? What if, what if every ache and pain is, oh my gosh, the cancer is coming back and your mind can just cycle into that anxiety and worry, right? So learning and training yourself to just pull back from that and say, no, I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to come here in the present moment. I'm going to bring myself into my body. I'm going to pay attention to my breath, right? I'm going to sort of just focus on what I have in the moment rather than some fantasy, negative or positive, about the future. And so that kind of drops away when you learn the skill of just letting it go, right? You come into the present moment. And as I said, when people are in the present moment, they tend to feel fairly happy. Things are generally okay. Um, now, when we think about specifically uncomfortable symptoms, like you said, uh, neuropathic pain or difficulty sleeping, um, the mindfulness approach, again, gives you tools to explore and to not run away from the symptoms, but ways to investigate them and to apply the mind-body approaches to help even lessen symptoms. So say take pain, for example. Um, you know, we don't tell people that they, the pain is just going to go away, but they can relate to their pain in a different way, right? Because the suffering caused by pain isn't just due to the pain sensations themselves. We have a little formula where we say total suffering, like S, equals pain, 
the physical sensations multiplied or times resistance, right? Our resistance to pain magnifies the overall suffering. So a mindfulness approach can help people not resist it, but to accept it a bit more and explore it and get to know it and begin to maybe release tension or relax around pain because uh, tensing up around it actually makes the pain sensations worse. And so beginning to explore our ideas around pain, you know, how we may say to ourselves, oh my God, I can't live this way any longer. You know, the rest of my life is going to be full of pain and I can't endure that. It's too much suffering. And to just look at it in the moment as it's actually there for what it is and how it ebbs and flows. Because one of the key principles, again, of mindfulness is seeing the, um, the, the constant nature of change, right? So we often say the only certainty in life is change. The only thing that we can be sure of is that however things are now, they're not going to be that way forever. Um, and knowing that, you know, knowing that things are constantly changing makes people more able to endure uncomfortable situations too. So you talk about that in, in the book. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting is when you talked about problem-focused coping versus emotional-focused coping. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, and that's sort of what I'm getting at, right? So we're all pretty good at solving problems, you know, in a kind of very step-by-step uh, -step way. So we can, so the problem is, okay, you have to get chemotherapy. Okay, we know how to do that. We make an appointment, we go, you know, we sort of do these more cognitive type of things. But with a cancer diagnosis, a lot of the problems or the difficulties are all the emotions that you're dealing with, right? The, the fear, the anxiety, the stress, the sadness, the grief, the loss, there's so much going on there. And you can't just solve your way out of those problems, right? You need to find a way to face the difficult emotions and allow them to run their course, right? Because if we try and stuff them down, they're going to pop right back up, you know, when you least want them to, you know, so that's, this is a side tangent, but that's partly why I, I, I don't particularly like this whole think positive, put on a happy face sort of approach, you know, that sometimes cancer patients are told to follow just, oh, think positive and everything will be okay. Actually, what's more beneficial is to accept and to face your emotions, whether they're difficult or they're positive. Um, in a really kind and compassionate way and allow yourself to feel them fully because, again, they're going to change. They'll run their course, right? If we allow ourselves to really experience sadness and loss because there is real sadness and loss and pretending there's not is not going to make it go away. You know, we need to allow ourselves the time to process the difficult emotions and then they will transform themselves. And the mindfulness practice is a safe container and some skills we can learn where we're able to do that, you know, in a modulated, safe, kind of contained way. So take me through how that works. Um, you know, one of the terms that, uh, that you used was a stress response versus a stress reaction. And how could you use mindfulness to change the dynamics of that stress response to one that, uh, that the automatic uh, sort of, yeah. gives you more healing, uh, you know, effect. So mindfulness in, in its broadest sense is just being aware of what we're doing to ourselves, how we cause ourselves suffering, because so much of it happens automatically all the time. We're not even aware of it. We're in these patterns. And so the first step in changing anything is to recognize what we're doing, that we're doing it. And so this 
pattern of stress reactivity, sort of automatic stress, stress reactivity we get into can be very detrimental. And what it is, is that we perceive something as stressful in our environment and it triggers off that fight or flight response. So that's all your autonomic reactivity, right? Your muscles tense, your heart starts racing, uh, your breathing is more shallow, you can't think very straight. So that's adaptive, obviously, you know, especially historically, biologically, where there's a, a bodily threat. You know, the typical example of the saber-toothed tiger or something, right? It makes sense to, you know, all the muscle, all the blood runs to your large muscles and you're ready for fight, fighting the saber-toothed tiger or running for the hills. And then the acute threat goes away and you come back to balance or homeostasis, right, in your system. But what happens in modern times is that we get one stressor on top of the other, often they're psychological stressors, you know, difficulties at work, an argument with your spouse, fighting with your kids, a worry about the cancer, having to go through treatments, financial concerns, and our body responds the same way. But often we don't have the skills or the tools or the techniques to get ourselves back to that balanced place that homeostasis. And so maybe we try and distract ourselves or we use coping mechanisms like having a drink of alcohol or using, um, you know, other drugs or we overwork or, you know, we, oh, I don't know, we do other sort of maladaptive type of things, overeating, you know, some people might become workaholics. So we try to cope in these different ways, but they have um, the opposite effect where they further stress our systems, right? And so we can become uh, sort of hyper aroused over time and then if we have genetic vulnerabilities or environmental vulnerabilities, we're more susceptible to disease. And so for some people, it might be a family history of depression or cardiovascular disease. For some people, that might be a history of cancer. And if they have other exposures, so I'm not saying stress causes cancer directly, but it's one of the potential contributing factors where if we have this chronic stress and chronic arousal, there's wear and tear on the system and it makes you more vulnerable to a variety of addictions, mental health problems, and physical disease. So that's that sort of downward spiral, we call it, of this just stress reactivity. And so on the flip side, the mindfulness approach talks about responding to stress. So recognizing, you know, there's still going to be things that happen in the world that are challenging, right? A cancer diagnosis is no piece of cake for anyone. But can we look at what our response is, recognize our stress symptoms, so whether it's a racing heart or tense muscles or pain, use that as a red flag to say, well, we got to do something here. And then all the techniques we teach people through the program is how to use various breathing techniques, some relaxation techniques, cognitive restructuring, the mindfulness practices to short circuit that reactivity cycle, right? Where it's just one on the, the next on the next and it leads to this wear and tear. So that we can even just do a simple breathing exercise and bring down our physiological reactivity to a nice base level, right? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the main reasons that um, I got interested in integrative oncology in the first place is because you have um, somebody who's diagnosed, for example, with cancer. And I always want to focus on what are the kind of things you can do for yourself, you know, um, you may not necessarily be able to change the treatment plan or obviously the diagnosis itself, but you can change your response to that diagnosis. What are, you know, everybody who gets diagnosed has stress. What do we really mean when we say that? And 
what is uh, the potential outcome if somebody doesn't control their stress? Um, you know, so the way that we think about stress is that it's, it's not out there in the world, right? It's not what happens that determines how you feel. It's your interpretation of it. It's perception and appraisal, right? And so if you interpret something as stressful, then you're going to have all those bodily reactions. If you don't interpret it as stressful, you won't have that. Right. So one area to target is how we interpret or the stories we tell ourselves about what's going on in the world. Right. So we often make characteristic mistakes that are unhelpful. You know, for example, you know, a really simple example is, say, you're walking down the street and you see a friend coming by the other way. Um, you know, and you're sort of looking at them just to, to wave or whatever, but they sort of look down and they keep walking and they don't they don't recognize you. Now, how might you feel? Not what do you think, but how might you feel in that situation? You might feel hurt or that, uh, you know, let down. Yeah. Or maybe you're angry. Maybe you feel rejected. You know, you, I mean, other people, you know, laugh and say they feel relieved, right? They didn't want to talk to the person, right? Or you might feel concerned for the other person. And it all depends on how you make sense of that situation. Right. So, you know, you mightn't say, oh, they're avoiding me on purpose. They don't want to talk to me. They heard I have cancer. You know, they're avoiding me or maybe I said something. And so you get to feel really anxious and upset. Right. Or they maybe you get mad at them. How dare they avoid me because I have cancer? They, you know, they can't they can't face me anymore. Um, so looking at the way that we interpret the world, you know, and even in a cancer context, OK, your oncologist says you have to have some more treatments. Now, is that. A disaster? Does that mean, oh my God, I'm going to die? You know, or are we jumping to conclusions, right? Can we look at it and say, okay, is this something I can live with? You know, what are things I can do to help myself cope, right? So the way that we interpret it really determines that internal stress response. So stress is not something in the world. Stress is something that we create, right? And that's not to say that, you know, getting a cancer diagnosis and going through all that isn't challenging. Of course it is. Right. But there are different ways to, to cope with those different challenges. And we do have a lot of control over many of those areas. Great. Well, I want to learn more about how somebody trains in mindfulness. Um, so tell me a little bit about MBSR or MBCR. Um, what does the program look like and yeah. how does somebody go through that? Sure. Um, you know, so as I said, it's like it's a skill that people need to learn. Um, and so we start with a basic practice. Well, first an understanding of what is mindfulness in the first place, but then a practice of really simply, we start with something called a body scan. And all these practices are just um, training the mind to stay in the present moment, right? And so when you notice your mind wandering, you bring it back to whatever your focus is. And in the body scan, we direct people's attention from one end of the body to the other. You can maybe start at the toes, or the head doesn't matter but you'll do something like I'll give you an example you know so be lying on usually lying on a mat on the floor lying on your bed and just close your eyes and let your breath flow naturally you know, and then I'll say okay now bring your awareness to your big toe right without moving it just see what sensations are there so notice say it's your right big toe can you feel temperature can you feel texture can you feel the the fabric of your sock? Can you feel the pressure if your foot's touching the ground? 
right? And so just paying attention to whatever you can feel there and then moving on. So expanding that awareness to all of the toes on the right foot and feeling the balls of the toes and the nails, the nail beds. And as you breathe, just whatever awareness you have, paying attention. And so we would spend 45 minutes doing that, going through the whole body. And it's the, the skill and the learning is when your mind wanders. Did your mind wander while I was doing that? No, I'm still with you. Oh, good for you. <laughs> for most people, it will, right? You know, so you'll be in the toe and then you'll be like, I can't feel anything. Am I doing it right? There's something wrong here. Oh my God, I got that appointment, right? So the skill is noticing that because that's the tendency of mind and gently leading attention back to the focus of awareness. And every time you do that, you're creating new neural pathways or strengthening new pathways in your brain that are underused, right? Because the things that we do habitually become stronger. What you practice grows stronger. So if you practice thinking anxious thoughts, you'll be really good at doing that. And that'll be your default. But if you practice being in the moment, being in the body, you'll get better at that and that'll become more habitual. So we'll do that body scan practice. And we start with that because it's a little more tangible. It's a little easier to do than maybe just a breath awareness, which we move on to. But we'll do that practice every day for, say, two weeks for the first two weeks of the program. And the key here is that people do the practice every day at home. You know, and there's debate about what's the the perfect length of practice or the minimum length of practice. But, you know, I would say at least 10, 20, 30 minutes a day. Um, people are doing this practice and they'll find over, you know, the first two, three weeks, uh, it gets easier to keep your focus in the body. And when you do that and you're allowing your breath to slow down, you have a physiological relaxation response as well. So you're training your ability to pay attention. We call it focused attention. And that's the first skill that people need to learn is to focus your attention where you want it to go. Because really, we have very little control over our attention normally. You know, so we're learning the skill of focusing attention. Um, and then as the program progresses, ours is a nine-week program. They're typically maybe eight-week programs. But some people have tried to do shorter ones. There's six weeks, there's four weeks, you know. Um, you come to an awareness of breath practice, which is often done in a sitting meditation, where it's the same idea. You're just focusing in the body on the rising and falling of breath or the passing of breath in and out of the nostrils. Um, and when your mind wanders, you draw it back. And you're applying those attitudes of acceptance and kindness and patience, you know, kind of opposite attitudes to how we normally are. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and then as we become better at focusing attention, the kind of root or the heart of the mindfulness practice is actually opening up that awareness um, to everything in our present moment experience. So that would be open awareness or bare awareness, choiceless awareness. And is there like a specific time of the day that somebody has to do it? Is it flexible? Yeah. I, um, what's really important is that people put it in their schedule just to do it. A lot of people find first thing in the morning. Um, you know, I always used to do it fairly early in the morning was a good practice for setting you up for your day, you know. So you start your day, you feel fairly centered and balanced and calm. Um, other people will do it, you know, when they have a lunch break or they'll do it after work. Um, some people try before bed, but often they're a bit too sleepy and they, they fall asleep when they do it then. So it's really individual. The key though, is just to do it and to do it regularly. And that's the hardest part too. In your experience, um, how hard is it for cancer patients to go through a program like this? Uh, do most people find it 
relatively easy or what are some of the challenges you've seen? Well, you know, so the people I see are the ones who've taken a step of signing up for it, you know, so they're already a select group who have that motivation. Um, it does tend to be cha more challenging for people during treatment because they do have a lot of fatigue and other appointments. Um, so I do find that at that time frame, people are often not able to attend all the classes or practice as much, although they will still benefit from those skills. You know, even when they're getting their chemotherapy infusions, they can do deep breathing. And, you know, when they're waiting for appointments, they can calm themselves down. Um, so for most people, the best time to do it is sort of at the completion of treatment. And I would say in our programs, we have a dropout rate of about 20%, maybe. Um, and most people do struggle, not everybody. Most people will find it difficult in the first two or three weeks. And we, we prepare them for that, right? We say, oh, this stress reduction is stressful, right? Because we're asking people to add a new thing into their day every day. You know, and people have routines and they're busy. And at first, it doesn't always feel great, right? And that's another misconception is that you're going to feel calm and blissful and your mind goes blank. Everything's wonderful. Well, it's not that way because mindfulness is awareness about everything, right? And so you might be feeling crappy one day or scared or angry, but you can be mindful of that and you're still mindful, right? So people are not always having pleasant, blissful experiences when they first do the practice and they need to understand that that's normal and that's fine and they're still learning. They're still developing the, the skill that's going to be beneficial. You know, so having, um, having a good instructor who understands some of those barriers and difficulties um, is going to be really helpful for people. I find a lot of people who come to the class have tried to meditate in the past and they may have done it for a while, but then they dropped off or they encountered some of these barriers where they thought, oh, I can't do it. My, rhyme, my mind's crazy. It's racing too much. You know, it's, it's impossible. So you mentioned instructor. Uh, are MBSR or MBCR classes um, offered just about everywhere? Or what if you're in a location where you may not have access to it? Well, MBSR classes are pretty generic and pretty widespread uh, through the United States and, and parts of Canada. Like every major city would definitely have a generic mindfulness-based stress reduction class, but most of them are not covered through insurance policies. Um, some cancer centers offer some form of meditation or yoga or a mindfulness-based cancer recovery program, but definitely they're not super widespread. I mean, it's for that reason that we developed an online version of the program where it's like a video conferencing type of program. So people still go at a certain time, but they do it from their computers at home. Um, and so that's offered now through a company called eMindful in the States. So they still charge a fee for it, but people can sign up and do it and they offer it on a regular basis. And it is, it's our program. We basically wrote it for them. So that's one option, you know, and then of course there's a gazillion mindfulness apps, right? Um, you know, there you don't have the benefit of a live instructor to get feedback and ask questions uh, to. Um, so I think it's a bit more challenging. Um, you know, and there's a wide range, again, of apps that are often used. And we've developed one um, that is the Mindfulness-Based Cancer Recovery Program specifically um, that can be, you know, that can be purchased too, right? But it's not freely available either. Um, you know, the other thing I would suggest is even just going to a, a meditation center because most, most cities have a local meditation center with, a, you know, good teachers and dropping groups and what they call Dharma talks. So those are your like uh, classes, you know, your lessons um, and the type of 
meditation that the mindfulness-based interventions like MBSR and MBCR are based on is a Vipassana approach. So insight meditation or Vipassana meditation. Um, people can look for, for that in their local community, and it'll be a very similar approach and also probably quite helpful. Great. And what kind of books do you usually you know, recommend other than your own? Yeah, for sure. Well, John Kabat-Zinn, right? So um, he's actually the founder of Western versions of mindfulness-based interventions. And he, he originated MBSR in 1979 and after a number of years wrote um, his sort of seminal book called Full Catastrophe Living. Um, and it's got a subtitle, you know, how facing stress, cope with stress, pain and illness, something like that. Um, but Full Catastrophe Living is, uh, you know, is actually quite funny when he tells the story of the name. Um, his publisher says, you can't, you'll never sell a book called Full Catastrophe Living. <laughs> No one wants to buy that. Um, but it comes from a, a movie Zorba the Greek where he talks about, um, you know, and there's this idea in, in mindfulness about, well, if not now, when? If I can't be happy now, when? Right? And so if you can't be happy, if you can't live in the midst of the full catastrophe, which is life, right? Well, then when? You know, so the idea that these techniques are something you can learn that's going to serve you well in the eye of the storm, right, in the midst of the full catastrophe. So his books, it's now in the, I don't know what, 6th, 7th edition, excellent book, takes you through his whole program, lots of stories of people he's worked with, um, a lot of the rationale around, you know, why we do these practices, some of the background from sort of the Bud Buddhist uh, originations of some of the practices and the philosophy. So read Full Catastrophe Living. Um, you know, for other books that are generic to Western approaches to mindfulness, I like Jack Cornfield. He's the founder of um, Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. Uh, he's written A Path with Heart. It's a great book. Thich Nhat Hanh is a wonderful Vietnamese monk who writes really slim, accessible volumes about mindfulness um, and some guided meditations. Sharon Salzberg writes about loving kindness practice, which is another practice we do later on in the program um, to cultivate feelings of compassion and kindness for oneself and others. So she's also a great resource. Pema Chodron, there's so many. Of <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I feel like mindfulness is definitely um, taking off in uh, popular culture. Um, I think John Kabat-Zinn has uh, joined forces with uh, Anderson Cooper have have you gone to this mindfulness in America summit or, you know, do you know much about it? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of mindfulness programs now, right? There's wisdom 2.0 and yeah, no, not the Anderson Cooper one, but I've certainly seen his um, 60 minutes episode where he does that. And it goes right back to Bill Moyer's healing in the mind in 1995 was the first really big publicization of John Kabat-Zinn's work. Um, and that, really kick-started it. I mean, it's a double-sided coin. I think it's great, right, that so many people are, are sort of, you know, showing an interest in mindfulness in so many applications. Like, it's huge in the schools and in education. I think it's great for teachers and kids. You know, there's this whole movement in the workplace and leadership, right? And, you know, in a way, it makes me smile because they, you know, they the way they sell it in, like, corporations like Google and things like that is it's going to make you more productive if you're mindful, right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to make us a whole bunch more money or save us money. And indeed it may, right? And there's uh, mindful leadership, there's mindfulness in the law. I mean, it's really permeated so many areas of society. And I think as long as it maintains, you know, the fundamental principles that 
came from the Eastern philosophies in the first place. You know, I think in some ways it maybe is being applied superficially in some settings where people don't really understand what it means. Like <laughs> just a little anecdote. I mean, I was um, once invited on a phone call for a corporation that was trying to sell mindfulness programs to like a large, a large employer in the States, right, who had thousands and maybe tens of thousands of employees. And I was on the phone with the HR manager who was in charge of benefits, and they were looking at getting mindfulness training as a benefit for their employees. And she said, yeah, you know, I like this idea of mindfulness, she said, because it seems so much easier than meditation. <laughs> Everyone can do it. And I, I just went, uh, I, I just was like completely dumbfounded because mindfulness is meditation. Right. And somehow it's become separated. Like it's meditation is like some difficult esoteric Eastern, you know, guru thing. And mindfulness is this much more accessible Western thing. But mindfulness, the core of it is the practice of meditation. Right. It's just a specific type of meditation. Um, you know, and I think the way it's been, quote unquote, whitewashed a little bit um, is problematic for sure. Yeah. Well, let's get back to kind of. Um some of your research and research in the field. I mean, can you take us through some of the most important findings uh, from a research standpoint in the effects of mindfulness and mindfulness programs for patients with cancer? Sure, yeah. And our group was actually the first people to publish on mindfulness and cancer patients. And our first paper came out in the year 2000, right? So now we're, we're about 20 years on. And what we saw in that paper was we measured a range of different mood symptoms and stress symptoms for, you know, anger, anxiety, uh, tension, and a whole range of symptoms of stress from, you know, cognitive symptoms to behavioral to physical symptoms, and just saw huge reductions across the board in all the stress symptoms, improvements in mood, less anger, less anxiety. Um, and we're actually surprised at the magnitude of the effects at how much it was helping people. Um, and so we continued to do a range of different studies looking at not only self-report and quality of life measures, we looked at symptoms like insomnia and fatigue, and also began taking, and I have a history of psychoneuroimmunology, which is looking at the mind-body connection. So we would look at what was happening in the body through taking saliva samples to look at stress hormones like cortisol. We would take blood samples so we could look at um, immune functioning through cytokines. And we would look at, we've done studies looking at um, what's happening in the DNA with telomere length. We've done studies looking at blood pressure reductions, um, you know, and just showing a range of effects through all these different systems in the body. So tell me what you found with uh, the telomere length. Yeah, well, this was really interesting, right? Because as a bit of background, so, you know, telomeres are the caps on the end, ends of the chromosomes and they naturally shorten with aging. And so shorter telomeres are associated with increased risk for a number of diseases, including cardiovascular disease and some cancers. And as well, um, what re researchers had been beginning to see was that people who experience more chronic life stress had shorter telomeres than other people their age who hadn't had those kind of stressors. So stress also accelerates the shortening of the telomere length. But no one had ever looked to see if an intervention, especially a short-term intervention, could maybe slow that shortening or even lengthen the telomeres because apparently these things biologists. So I teamed up with a biologist at my university um, who measured telomere length in a group of women with breast cancer before and after both mindfulness-based cancer recovery so that uh, it was an eight-week program, 
that I described, and also supportive expressive group therapy, which is another sort of group emotional expression program. And then we had a number of women who didn't do either program. They were the controls. And what we found actually in terms of telomere length was that for both support groups, the telomeres, the telomere length didn't change. They remained stable. But for the women in the control group, their telomeres became shorter. And this was just over a period of three months. Wow, that's fascinating. It was really interesting. And it was the first report of its kind to show that there could be an impact of an intervention in such a short time frame. Now, what it means clinically, we really don't know. You know, it's just sort of amazing that you can show that sort of signal in such a short time frame. What, uh, what kind of studies are ongoing right now that you find interesting? Well, and I didn't even get to other people's work. I mean, so we've done all that work. There's also been other groups around the world who have done large studies with mindfulness interventions, you know, looking at similar things like, uh, you know, uh, immune function and, you know, effects on sleep. Um, what we're interested in right now, actually, um, like we sort of talked about, is this dissemination and scalability issue. Because the in-person programs require people to come, you know, in person to uh, some center where they offer it. And really there's not trained instructors in that many places and it's hard for a lot of people um, to make those visits. And so really we wanted it to offer it to people who live in rural and remote areas, um, you know, who may have symptoms that prevent them from traveling, they might have mobility issues, they might have immunosuppression due to their treatments. So the things that they could do in their home. And so that's why we developed the online um, group-based program that's the sort of live interactive version and tested that out. And right now we're testing out this app I mentioned. So, um, you know, we had just developed it in the last year. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily for sure or something you could assume that because it helps a person, it helps people in group settings in person with a live instructor that that's going to translate, right, to an app that they just sit with by themselves on their phone you know, there's hundreds, probably thousands of mindfulness apps, but very few of them have ever been evaluated. And I think there's only maybe one or two studies in cancer um, using generic apps. So this app we have is taken the content from the mindfulness-based cancer recovery program. We recorded it and made it into modules and a kind of a lessons that people can try at home. We're testing it out to see, you know, how it is for people. And if it's got some benefit, then that would be something that you could look at, um, you know, disseminating and scaling out to make it more accessible for people. So I really think the dissemination, the scalability, try to reach more people is where we need to go with these types of things. Great. Um, I, I think one of the things that comes up for me is if you have somebody who is having trouble sleeping, having anxiety, um, there's a whole range of different things you might recommend. Um, do you parse that out at all? Like what if uh, somebody sees a psychologist and they want to undergo cognitive behavioral therapy um, and somebody else likes a different meditation practice that, um, you know, maybe more concentration focused, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, so there's two answers to that. So uh, first I would turn to the evidence, right? So for some symptoms like insomnia, the gold standard treatment is CBT for insomnia. Cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia is actually more effective than drug treatments. It's a highly empirically supported treatment. So if someone had insomnia, I would most likely say, okay, you should do CBTI. We actually did a study comparing CBTI to the mindfulness-based cancer recovery. And the mindfulness-based cancer recovery did help with the sleep, but it took longer. It wasn't as quick in improving symptoms. But for a lot of the sort of more generic symptoms, you might call them like anxiety, um, you know, just sort of coping in general, 
dealing with feelings of depression or sadness, a lot of the mind-body therapies um, are effective and very few of them have been tested head to head, right? So for example, if you have something like even pain or nausea, uh, relaxation with imagery is helpful, Hip hypnosis can be helpful, um, you know, different mind-body therapies, relaxation, um, meditation, yoga. We're doing a study now comparing um, mindfulness-based cancer recovery to a Tai Chi Qi Gong group to try and get at some of those questions. Are there specific problems or symptoms that one or the other of these interventions are more well suited to treat, right? So we're looking at maybe um, the Tai Chi will help people more with their physical functioning and their strength and their balance. Maybe the mindfulness will help more with the cognitive symptoms. We don't know. And so really what I say to people now is it's just what you want to do, what your preference is. Like if you really want to go and do some Reiki or you feel like a Tai Chi class is for you, go for it, right? Because we really don't have the evidence base to, to make many of those recommendations. Thanks, Linda. Um, I just wanted to finish and ask you, you know, you're uh, a very productive researcher, you're a professor, a speaker. Um, how do you personally bring mindfulness into your life? Yeah, and I've got two kids in school and a dog and a partner. Yeah, it's challenging for sure, right? It was a lot easier when it was just me and a job before I had a family. I would do it every morning. In fact, I would do it when I got into work. First thing, I'd get into work a little early and I would meditate for the first half hour and then I would settle down in front of my computer. Once I had kids, the morning just didn't work. You know, I just was not able to get up early and have the quiet time or the energy to do it. So I had to sort of factor it into different parts of my life. For a long time, I did it before bedtime, although I do prefer earlier in the day. Um, you know, my partner, thankfully, uh, likes to meditate. And so he sort of keeps me going. And, you know, we tend to do it maybe after the kids go to school now, if I'm working at home, uh, you know, they're all off at 830, I got to walk the dog, right? Um, and then you can squeeze it in there. But definitely it's more challenging. And I haven't been able to do the longer retreats that I used to do, too, because, you know, I'm away with work and going to conferences. And so to find seven days where I can just go and sit and do a meditation retreat really is not going to happen very easily these days. So yeah, it's definitely more challenging. And I still teach the mindfulness groups, which is great, right? Because that sort of keeps you grounded in the practice um, when you're teaching it. Yeah. yeah and I find also that um, it helps to not be seeking perfection, you know, because sometimes we can all be um, hard on ourselves. And uh, if you're busy, especially, you have to make choices, um, whether you're going to sleep, whether you're going to exercise, whether you're going to meditate, what you're going to yeah, do with I mean, your kids. Yeah, I mean, that is one thing I do because I, I I, still do, I run, right? Because I can run with the dog and that kills two birds with one stone. But you can run mindfully, right? And I often really make a specific effort to do that. I mean, walking meditation is one form of meditation. So, you know, running, if you're actually paying attention to your breath, you're feeling your feet as they hit the ground, you know, you're feeling the breeze, right? Instead of like planning your shopping list, then that's also a form of mindfulness practice. Well, thank you so much. Um, I learned a lot and I really appreciate you coming on and um, I wish you the best luck. Well, thank you. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. Thanks so much. You bet. <laughs>